you be turning with me to Galatians chapter 3. Let's pray together as we open God's Word before us. Our Father in Heaven, we, we come before You and we ask for Your help now, O Lord, as we come to the part now in our service where Your Word is opened up before us and we seek to understand it. We seek to, to see and to know how You would have us live in light of what we are about to see, what we are about to hear, and most of all, we seek to know and to see the Lord Jesus Christ shining forth through these verses. And so I ask that you would help me to proclaim that reality before your people, the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is front and center here, in these verses and also throughout the whole entire Bible. And I pray that your people would see that, that they would know it and that they would embrace it. Father, I ask that your word would accomplish its purposes here this morning. We ask that it would strengthen the weak, that it would humble the proud, that it would bring back the the person who may be wandering and that it would save the lost, those who may not know Christ. Father, may your word accomplish those things here this morning. And we, th- we thank you for, for who you are, for your character, for your steadfast love. And as we were singing a moment ago, Lord, that song that was so sweet to our, to our hearts and to our ears, that yes, we can proclaim that all is ours, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the the glorious truths and the, the glorious realities that the Bible puts before us is the truth, the reality that when you are saved from your sin by what Christ has done for you when you are saved from your sins you are not only justified counted righteous before God as we've been seeing as we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Galatians but you are also adopted into his very family so you're not only counted as righteous before Him. He not only looks at you as being you know, perfectly spotless, having no wrong whatsoever because of Christ, but He calls you His son, or He calls you His daughter. You are adopted into His family. You are His child. And that is how He treats you now and forevermore, if you are in Christ. He treats you as a son. He treats you as a daughter. And also being a a son and a daughter, you are are a rightful heir to the inheritance that God promised to Abraham long ago, which is also what we've been seeing uh, mainly in the past few weeks uh, throughout chapter 3. 
Uh, the promise that God made to Abraham long ago that he would inherit, he would have this inheritance through faith and that his offspring would inherit it through faith. So all of that is yours in Christ. And I bring that up because that's what Paul is about to start showing us here as we come to the end of chapter 3. Uh, specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 23 to verse 29. We're going to be closing out chapter 3 this morning. And so Paul is going to begin giving us this picture that we have in a way through Christ and all that He has done for us, we have passed from this type of slavery underneath the law of God, His law that we've been looking at. We've passed from this type of slavery, this bondage underneath it, to being sons of God and therefore having freedom and being heirs to the inheritance of Abraham. So that's what Paul's going to begin to unfold here in these verses. And throughout chapter 4, he's going to, to talk about this even more. But before we start looking at this wonderful truth that Paul's going to be unfolding in these verses, let's take a moment and think about what we saw last week because a lot of the language that we saw last week in verses 15 to 22, we're going to see here in these verses. So last week, in verses 15 to 22, Paul was, was showing us that when God gave the law, His law to His people, to the Israelites, He did not annul, meaning void, he didn't void his original promise, his original covenant that he made to Abraham, nor did he change it somehow. So when he made his original covenant to Abraham long ago, and he told him that he would be justified by faith, and that the world, all the nations would be justified through his offspring, he did not somehow change that covenant when he gave the law 430 years afterwards as we saw, which is what the Judaizers, the false teachers, who are trying to convince uh, the Galatian Christians uh, of these lies, of their lies. Paul was showing them that that's not true. God didn't change that. He didn't change his original promise. He didn't void it. He didn't change it. And so it's not about works. Now, it's still about faith. It's not about works. And also Paul showed that along with giving them an example of a man-made covenant in their day, when, they gave, when a man-made covenant was made in their day, in the Galatians time period, through their law system, their system of law, it wasn't able to be broken and it wasn't able to be changed. And so he showed the Galatians, how much more is this true of a covenant that God has made? You know, if your system of law says that when you make a covenant with someone, it can't be broken, it can't be changed, it can't be voided, how much more true is this of a covenant that God has made? Along with that... He also showed that when God made His covenant, He didn't make it to many when He uses the word offspring, but He was ultimately referring to one. 
He had many in mind, but ultimately he's referring to one. One particular offspring referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, which also shows that God, He hasn't changed what He's always been doing throughout the Old Testament. So the inheritance still does not come by the law, and instead comes by promise, the original promise that God made to Abraham. And then we saw that this brings up questions. Like, okay, why did He give the law then? And is the law contrary to the promises of God? If it's always been about the promise and it's not been about works, then why would God give a law that seems to be about works? You know, working your way to God through these commandments. Why would He do that? And Paul's answer was, as we saw, that God gave the law because of transgressions. Meaning, God gave the law to increase transgressions so that we would see our sin in a way that we could not see it if God hadn't give, gave His law. So through the law, our sin is exposed and we see it in a way that we couldn't have without the law. And so it increases our sin, but also it drives us to the promises of God all the more. That's why God gives the law. And it's not contrary to the promises of God, as Paul went on to say, because the law was never intended by God to give life. You were never meant to find life in the law of God. No, the law was meant to drive you to the promise that does give you life, which is in Christ. So that's what we were looking at last week and so now Paul continues this train of thought in verse 23. So I'd like for you to read with me as we look at these verses together. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 19 where he, he asks those two questions that I just mentioned. And if you're visiting this morning and you'd like to read in the translation that I am reading from, which is the ESV translation... You can take the pew Bible that's right in front of you and follow along in that if you'd like. Beginning in verse 19 of Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under our guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, for as, many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is 
no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So Paul begins here in verse 23 by saying, Now before faith came, the first thing that we need to to understand and be clear on as we walk through these verses is what Paul means by saying faith here, what he means by referring to faith. Now before faith came, what Paul is not referring to is he's not saying that before Christ came, there was no saving faith whatsoever. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that before faith in Christ came, there was no faith whatsoever that could save a person. Because if Paul was saying that, then he would be contradicting everything that he's been showing us, right? I mean, he's been showing us like through the examples of Abraham and through Habakkuk, that God has always sought to justify His people through their faith. The example of Abraham being that, God, that Abraham was justified by believing God and he was counted righteousness through his faith, not through his works. And then you had the example of Habakkuk, which Paul brings up in, in the beginning, well not in the beginning, in verses 10 to to 14, where he was bringing up all those scripture references there. He was showing clearly that the just shall live by their faith. So in the Old Testament, it is clear that although Christ was not on the scene there, they were justified by their faith. So what Paul is referring to when he says before faith came is new covenant faith. The the fulfillment of all of these promises being in Christ and Christ coming on the scene in a visible way where we can see Him. And he, He tells us through His Word that, hey, I'm the fulfillment. You put your faith in Me. I'm the one who fulfills the law. Salvation is through Me. So Paul is referring to new covenant faith here. Now before that type of faith came, And he continues, We were held captive under the law. By using the word captive here, he's referring to both a a negative sense of captivity and also a positive sense of captivity. So in the mind of Paul, as he says we were held captive under the law. He has in mind both a positive sense and he also has a negative sense going on here. And this is similar to like what we were looking at last week because he uses similar language where he says that, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Where Paul says imprisonment in that verse where he's referring to being imprisoned under Scripture, mainly the law. He has a positive and negative sense in mind, right? Because negatively, the law comes in 
And because of our sin, it shows us that there's no way that we can save, our, save ourselves. So it, in a way, it hems us in. It, it puts us in captivity. And as he says later on in the verse, it imprisons us. It holds us captive to it. We're imprisoned. We cannot get free. We are like somebody that's in bondage, held in chains. That's the negative sense. The law shows us that there is no way that you can save yourself from your sins. There is no way that you can get out from underneath my penalty of death that I put on all those who fail the requirements of the law. So that's the negative sense of captivity there where he says that we were imprisoned under the law. Now the positive sense comes where he says until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law does put us in captivity. It imprisons us. It puts us in bondage underneath our sin but with the aim of showing us that we need the promises of God. So it's like, picture someone who is in prison and they know that they cannot break free in and of themselves, right? If you are in prison and you're locked in there, you can't get out on your own. You need somebody to come and to break the bars for you so that you can walk out. So the law shows us that clearly by putting us in this bondage. But in a way, it prepares us for the time when Christ would show up and break those bars for us. And we would rejoice. So it prepares us in that way. It shows us our sin. It shows us how we're in bondage. And it makes us, in a way, cry out for God's help, for His promises. It makes us cry out for someone to come and to break us free until the coming faith would be revealed. And when the faith, the new covenant faith, referring to Christ, is revealed, He comes and He breaks us out of that prison, of this captivity. And then Paul means the same thing in verse 24 when he continues uh, in giving these illustrations where he says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. I want you to pause there for a moment on the word guardian there that Paul uses. In the original language, which was the Greek language, which is what Paul originally wrote this letter in, that word guardian refers to a person, usually a slave, who was put in charge of a child until... They grew up into maturity. And this usually happened in wealthy Greek families. Uh, the wealthy families, usually the ones who had these type of slaves. So they would have children, and each one of these children would have what was called a guardian. And this guardian would serve as kind of like a, a chaperone. I guess that's a good word to, to compare these two with. So this guardian would basically follow the child around, make sure that they got to school safely, got back from school to home safely or wherever else it was that they were traveling back to and fro from, 
which is why the, the, the King James Version, if you're reading from that version, it translates the word as schoolmaster or as a tutor. They're getting that thought process from this guardian, primarily leading them back and forth from school. But it's kind of misleading because the, the guardian didn't actually teach them. It didn't actually do the teaching. They didn't actually teach the child. They just led them there and then the, the actual teacher would do the teaching, and then they would just pick them up or be waiting in a room for them to get finished, and then they would lead them back to their home. So the guardian was just a chaperone. But also, one of the responsibilities of this guardian was disciplinary action. And so, very often when this person, this slave, was portrayed through paintings or through pictures, they would have a rod in their hand portraying the disciplinary action that they would enforce on the child that they watched over. And I think that's the primary sense that Paul has in mind here when he uses the word guardian. That's the negative sense that the guardian has over us, that the, the law has over us. The law is our guardian in a way that it stands over us, it follows us around like a chaperone, and it disciplines us. It shows you where you're wrong. It says, thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. It tells you what you are to do and what you are not to do. But it can't help you do them. It does not give you the power to obey them. It just tells you what you should be doing and then disciplines you, gives you the penalty of death when you cannot do them. So the law serves as our guardian in that way. But also, in a positive way, kind of like the chaperone with the child, it's preparing that child for adulthood, right? The purpose of disciplining this child is so that they would know discipline and so that they would grow into maturity. And so the law does that for us. The law stands over you, showing you where you're wrong, and disciplines you so that you would be prepared for the moment when God in the fullness of time would set forth His Son and you would then embrace Him and embrace the freedom that He gives when He comes on the scene. The law is a guardian in that way. So there you have the, the negative and the positive flowing through these things, these illustrations that Paul gives, uh, referring to the law here. But thanks be to God that the law wasn't meant to be permanent. It wasn't meant by God to permanently follow us around and show us how we're wrong and discipline us. It was Again, using the illustration that Paul uses for the chaperone, when the, the child would grow into maturity, it would no longer need the chaperone, right? It's mature. The child is mature. It can walk back and forth on its own. It knows how to act now. It no longer needs this guardian. So when Christ comes on the scene and we are in Christ... We, in a way, grow into maturity and we no longer need the law in that way. And that's what Paul means whenever he now transitions from showing 
what we were like before faith came, going back to what he says in verse 23, to now in verse 25 showing that after faith has come, he says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under this chaperone. We're no longer under this disciplinary action. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now there's a lot that I can get into here that I'm going to save for not next week, but the week after because we'll be taking a break next week. But there's a lot that I could get into right now about this word sons and what it means that Paul's going to flesh out next week. And how, what, what's going on here, this, this transition from being under the law to now being considered a, a son of God through faith. So we'll get into that more in a couple of weeks whenever we enter into chapter 4 when Paul fleshes this out a little bit more. But for, he, but for now, in Christ, in all that He's done for you and your saving faith in Him, you are no longer considered being in this type of slavery under the law. You're no longer under the bondage that it gives. You're no longer imprisoned. You're no longer being followed around by this chaperone. You are now sons of God. And He looks at you as His own child. I'll give you an exercise to do. I think this would be a pretty cool exercise for you to do as you read through your Bible plan, as you read through the Old Testament. I want you to notice as you read through your Bibles in the Old Testament how many times the word Father is used in reference to God in the Old Testament. It's not used very often. Because the Israelites at that time, they were in a way afraid or they didn't think it was very reverent to refer to God as Father. But then when you come to the New Testament and Christ comes on the scene and He begins to unfold God's plan and what He's been doing and how Christ makes you or brings you back into fellowship with God as sons, Father is used all over the place in reference to God. And Jesus Himself teaches you to pray, how? My Father in heaven, or our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Through Christ, you receive that great gift of calling God your Father, being called sons of God, children of of God. You get the gift of calling Him Father. So that's a wonderful blessing that when you can pray, or that when you pray, you can go to God as your heavenly Father. Praying to Him as a, a child goes before their earthly father, earthy, earthly father, or, or their parent. Asking or bringing their needs before their earthly parents, so we do before our heavenly Father. Christ has purchased that for us, this great gift. So now we are, in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through our faith, not through our works, going back to what Paul's been arguing, 
throughout this chapter. It's through our faith, not through our works. And then he continues showing also what this means, how this, this comes out in our lives. For as, many, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He gives the picture of baptism here. Referring to both spiritual baptism and also physical baptism. Because when you become a Christian, you are first and foremost spiritually baptized. It's not, you can't see that. But when you are a Christian, when you, be, when you become a Christian, you are in that moment justified before God and your old self is put to death, your old sinful self. I mean, you're not literally put to death. But your old sinful, rebellious heart is put to death in Christ's death, and then you're also raised in His resurrection and given new life through the Spirit of God. That's the spiritual baptism. Now, physical baptism just puts that on display publicly so that we can see what God has done in you, in your heart. He, and that's why when you're baptized, you are submerged in the water and then you're raised from it. You're submerged, showing that your old self is being buried with Christ, and then you're raised to new life when you're brought out. So that's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's showing that for all who have been baptized in Christ, for all who have been baptized into Christ, have indeed put on Christ. And he refers to putting on a garment, like putting on new clothes. When you're baptized into Christ, your old self is taken off in a way. You shed that clothing, that old self, and now you put on Christ. This is what you wear. This is how God now sees you. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I want you to think for a moment about the Galatian Christian situation that was going on here at this time period when Paul was writing. Think about the things that he has just said in these verses. What were the Judaizers saying to the Galatians? They came to these churches and they were trying to convince the Galatians that if they did not obey the law, they were in fact not completely right with God and that they were in a way second-rate Christians. They were below the Judaizers unless they were circumcised, unless they obeyed the sacrificial system, unless they obeyed the dietary laws of the the Old Testament law. But Paul shatters that here, doesn't he? He shows, no, through faith in Christ, you put Christ on. And you are sons of God. Whether you are Gentile or whether you are a Jewish person. Gentile meaning non-Jew. Which is, again, reminds you that's all of you sitting before me. In Christ and being baptized in His death and being raised to new life in His resurrection... It doesn't matter what color you are, what ethnicity you are, what race, 
you put on Christ and you become a son or a daughter of God through Christ in faith or through your faith, not through your works. So just think about how freeing that was to hear for the Galatians. You know, they're, they're hearing all this garbage being preached to them by the Judaizers and they're in a way believing it. They're in danger of believing it. And then here comes Paul's letter speaking the sweet words of freedom to them, saying you don't need all this other stuff. All you need is your faith in Christ. And through that, you are considered a son or a daughter in Him. And in being sons of God through faith, listen to what he says next in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to be clear here. When Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, he's not saying that once you become a Christian, all of these things are just done away with. There's no such thing as race anymore. There's no such thing as rank anymore. There's no such thing as gender anymore. He's not saying that. He's not trying to say that in a way when you become a Christian you become colorblind or something like that. I mean, Christians are still made up of different tribes, tongues, and nations. Christians are still made up of of people who now in this world have different ranks. There are people who have higher positions in our world than others do. You know, some people have a higher status than others do because of whatever it is, maybe their job or or whatever it may be. And Christians are made up of male and female. Sex still exists. There are still women and there are still men. I'm talking about sex is whenever I use that word. There are still difference in gender. There's still men and there's still female. It's not, Paul's not trying to say sameness here. That's not what he's arguing for. But what he is saying is that once you are in Christ, those things no longer cause division. Those things no longer separate us from one another. Those things no longer should cause strife. They should no longer cause fights or arguments or looking down upon each other or thinking that you are better than each other. I mean, you think about all of the the issues that we still have going on today that were, I'm sure, going on in their day as well. You think about the the issues that we have with race. Oh man, how much conflict do we have because of color? You know, the color of our skin, the fights that break out, the, the hatred that is caused because we look different from one another. And in our sin, we we say hateful things to each other because of our race. Whether you are black or white or Hispanic or or Chinese, or, or whatever it may be. Think about all of the, 
the conflict and the problems that are caused in our day from rank, you know, social status, how we think of one another, how we tend to, in our sin, think that we're better than other people because maybe we have a higher paying job than they do or we have more possessions that, than they do or we're, we have more friends than they do or whatever it may be. You know, use your imagination. There's all different types of ranks in the world that, that cause quarrels among us. And then you think about the strife and the conflict that gender issues cause. Men domineering over women. And then women trying to fight for equal rights in the world. Saying that they should have all of the rights that men have. That they should be treated just like men do. I mean, all of these things are coming from our sin and how we tend to look at each other and how we're different. But when you are brought into fellowship with Christ, and you put Him on, all of these things are abolished. There's no reason to divide because of color. Because you are one in Christ. There's no reason to divide because of your social status. Because you are one in Christ. There's no reason to divide because of gender. Because you are one in Christ. Now I'll bring up a couple of ways of application here and then we'll move on to the last thing that Paul says and I'll close. In the original context of this passage, talking about the Galatians here, this was extremely freeing for them because one of the main things that they were facing as Gentile believers as I mentioned a moment ago, was that they were being thought less of because they weren't Jews. They were thought less of because of that. And they were told that they had to do these other things to be counted or to be called as, or to be counted as worthy as the Jews were. But what Paul says here frees them from that bondage. Because he says, no, no, no. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what rank you are in life. It doesn't matter what your gender is. Because in Christ you are all one in Christ. There is unity. It freed these Christians in the first century to love one another. And that when these accusations came against them, they could grab hold of these promises and preach them to themselves, right? That they could preach the gospel to themselves. That no matter what these people over here are saying about me, no matter even if they're saying I'm a second-rate Christian, God through the gospel says that we are one in Christ. And so we are equal in Christ. We are all heirs in Christ, as Paul is about to say in a moment. And this is also true today, still, in the, 20, the 21st century. 
I'll bring up a, a personal example of this in my life and see if you can relate. And then I'll, I'll ask some questions and see if you can think of some ways that you can preach this truth to yourself. So, I am a, a pastor, right? You know, I'm, I'm the pastor here at Alds Chapel Bible Church. And that is, in a way, a part of my identity. So many people, when they think of me, they think of Ryan the pastor. Well, some think highly of that, and some tend to think lowly of that. And a while back, I was talking to one of my family members. I was there uh, at their house, just there visiting, hanging out. I can't remember exactly what I was doing. But I was leaving because I, I had to go, I had stuff to do, I had work to do, you know, preparing for messages like these. And that's what I said, I said, oh, well, I'm going to head out, you know, I, I got work to do. And they laughed at me. And the reason why they laughed is because, you know, pastors, you know, they don't work, right? You know, pastors don't have a job. You know, you... What do pastors do? I mean, they, they sit behind a desk, they, they read all day, they, they exclude themselves from the reality of the world, right? <clears throat> and so here in that moment, I have a family member who I think much of laughing at me because they don't think that my job amounts to anything. They don't think my job is work. You know, they told me, it's like, oh, I thought you meant you had a real job, you know? You know, a job where you actually use your hands when you work. And, and I have to say that I left there, you know, almost like a knife had gone through my chest in that moment. You know, being thought of in that way, you know, by my own family, who, who I care for, who I pray for. I mean, this person's not a Christian. I pray for them. I ask that God would save them. And here in this moment, they're, they're belittling me. You know, they are identifying me with my pastoral responsibilities. Now in that moment, it was very easy for me to say, okay, you think my job's not work? How about you stand before people who have just lost a loved one and they're looking at me wanting to know what God has to say to them. Why this person has just died. And they want to know the truth of God. You know how hard that is? It's very easy to say that in that moment. Or, okay, you know how hard it is to sit here and to read these things and then try to communicate them to other people so that they could see the truth of God and what it means for their lives and apply it to them? You know how hard that is? But if, if I argue like that, I'm not preaching the gospel to myself. And I'm not arguing in a way that Paul would call me to argue. Because what does he say here? He doesn't tell you to start listing off all of the things that make you somebody, right? He doesn't tell you to start saying, okay, well, if the Judaizers come to you and they say that you're not a, a first-rate Christian, we'll start telling them all the things that you did. You know, well, we, uh, we did this, this, and that. I mean, we believed in this way, 
And we have done all of these wonderful things for God. We give all of this money. We work in all of these ways. Therefore, we're a first-rate Christian. Paul doesn't say that. He points them to their union with Christ. That is their identity. That is my identity. And that is your first and foremost identity. And the women and the youth, you should be familiar with this because we've been looking at it in our studies through James with Matt Chandler, talking about how your identity is first and foremost in Christ. It's not in the things that you do. And so how I am called to preach to myself in that moment is I am to say, Ryan, you are not first and foremost a pastor, whatever they may think that means. You are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are one with Christ. And He is what defines you. Your job does not define you. (laughs) No matter how worthless people may think it is. And so, I know that you are not pastors here, but how many times have people belittled you because of, I don't know, maybe where you are in life? Maybe they, they don't think well of where you're at in life. You know, maybe you're poor. Or maybe you don't have a whole lot of money. Maybe you don't have a whole lot of friends. Maybe you're not, you know, towards the top on the the social scale in life. Maybe you've screwed up in a lot of ways. Or maybe have horrible, a horrible past of of sin or or whatever, whatever it may be. Just use your imagination. All of the ways that people can belittle you. Like Paul says here, because of your race, because of your rank. Because of your gender. I mean, how many women, I'm sure many of you here, have been belittled by a man at some point in your life? Hopefully it's not your husband now. I pray it's not. If it is, then you need to repent of your sin and read Ephesians. (laughs) But we've all been belittled in these ways. And the way that you're called to preach to yourself is not to think of all of the things that you've done or all of your accomplishments. You think about your union with Christ and how you are all one in Him. He is what defines you. I am clothed in Christ. I have been baptized into Christ and I have put Christ on. And that's how God sees me. doesn't matter how you see me. You know, if you belittle me, it does not matter because I am in Christ. And also, now closing with what Paul says last, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So not only are you one in Christ, united to Him in His death and in His resurrection and in His new life, you are heirs along with Him. You are an heir to the inheritance that God promised to Abraham long ago. The the inheritance being that you receive the Spirit of God and that you are now now in fellowship with Him because the Spirit of God fills you and He gives you new life. One day, I mean, you, you experience that here and now in a way but one day you will receive that inheritance fully. And all of that is because you are united 
to Christ. Not because of what you've done, but through your faith in Him. And in a couple of weeks, when we pick back up in chapter 4, Paul's going to continue to unfold what this sonship means and what it looks like to pass from this slavery under the law to sonship, being children of God and what all of that means. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your great promises as we were, we were looking and, and talking about where Paul says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Father, we are all united to Christ and we all have our value and our identity in Him. Our worth is found in Christ. And if there's someone here who does not know that, or if they are not in Christ, then I pray that they would cling to Christ, that they would seek His face, that they would seek the saving work of Christ on their behalf, and they would be united to Him. Because if they are not united to Christ, then they are separated from Him, and they are separated from God. And without Him, they will be separated for all eternity. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.